Good morning, TCC. It's uh, really exciting to be here with you and to see you all. Um, we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 3. If you got a Bible, <clears throat> go ahead and open to that or scroll to it. Um, and if you don't, I, mm, I don't know if there are Bibles available right now or not. Um, anyways, Romans, chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 20 today. Uh, this passage actually starts in the middle of the sentence, so I'm going to borrow from last week's chapter, or verse 9, and go 9 through 20 to start ourselves off. But Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20 is where we're going to be this morning. So I'm going to start in verse 9 because grammar. Um, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So let's pray. Lord, in this moment, I do feel very inadequate to preach your word. And truthfully, I am. You are a holy God, and I am simply me. And so I would pray that your Holy Spirit would go forth. I pray that your Holy Spirit would act in power, not only for the preaching, but also the receiving of your word. Because I know the same God who penned these words through the apostle years ago is the same God who works in my heart, is the same God that works in the heart of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And how good it is that we can wrestle with this together. I pray that you would quicken our hearts, you would lead us to repentance, and help us to rejoice in the splendor of your grace. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this is kind of a weird passage. Um, <laughs> that's how you start a Bible. Um, it's kind of a weird passage because even though it is in Romans, it's actually mostly like Paul quoting Psalms and the, uh, the prophet Isaiah um, so we're going to be obviously reading this, but as we're reading this, we're also reading the Old Testament. So uh, my plan today is kind of let the Bible do the heavy lifting, uh, and I think that's cool with us, right? Like the Bible is what we all need. Um, so I thought that would be good. Uh, one more caveat is this is not a really feel-good sermon, and I just want to kind of let you guys know that up front. Um, as you kind of just read with me, uh, it deals with some pretty tough issues. Um, it's, not a, it's not really about like affirming you as like, you know, you are your best self kind of a thing. 
Um, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that uh, Pastor Josh isn't the one preaching today uh, because he's usually the one who gets the, like, you're not good people sermons. Um, so <laughs> glad to take this one from you, brother. Um, but I think the actual best part about this, I, it's important that you're here to the end because the best part about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the good news has nothing to do with us anyway. So as I'm preparing for this message, I keep thinking about the novel, The Strange Case, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and because I'm a fan, it has a musical theater adaptation too. Um, so I think most of you may be generally familiar with the gist of it, but if you're not, the story is about this scientist named Dr. Henry Jekyll, who has this idea that he can cure humanity by creating this serum that will separate the wicked man from the true good man. And once separated, you can destroy the wicked nature so you're just a good person. Uh, what actually ends up happening, I'm, I'm gonna spoil this book for you because it's like 100 years old and I don't feel bad about it. Um, what ends up happening though is that the, uh, the, the wicked side, uh, Mr. Hyde, Edward Hyde, actually overpowers Henry Jekyll and Jekyll becoming increasingly powerless to control his transformations is forced to destroy both himself and his evil alter ego. And if you're like me, you might familiarize yourself with these characters more through pop culture references than the actual book. Um, my, to me, most notably, uh, Mr. Hyde appears in that cinematic masterpiece, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, fun story about that that I won't get into. But anyways, they kind of like do this crazy thing with him where they turn Mr. Hyde into the Incredible Hulk. Like he transforms into like this massive burly dude who just like bangs up stuff and like it's, it doesn't make any sense, but it's awesome. Uh, but what's important is that he's like this powerful, unhinged, deranged person with absolutely no moral compass. Um, and I think <clears throat> what we're forced to reckon with is that we often think of ourselves as being heckle, jekylls who have hides kind of in our back pocket. But what the book really forces us to consider is that can we really separate this vice-loving, morally destitute, wicked part of ourselves from who we actually are? And the Bible talks about that. The Bible does not say that we're good people who sometimes do bad things. The Bible does not say that we're two people in one body constantly struggling of good versus evil within us. We're not even good people who sometimes make mistakes. We are on our own corrupt. We follow our base passions and we look out primarily for ourselves. The heart is deceitful above all things, says Jeremiah 17.9. The heart meaning the essence of who we are. Each and every one of us is actually Edward Hyde. We are, in summary, broken down, corrupt sinners. When we read about our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of those around us, both in our Bible and even in the daily news, we shouldn't be surprised. Without supernatural help, our situation is helpless, hopeless, and altogether pitiful. And so the text that we're going to look at is going to offer several descriptors of how we as people are to be described. And these descriptors describe you, they describe me in our natural, unfiltered state, apart from our time, culture, and any other influence. And it's not pretty. The first corruption that we see in verses 10 through 12 is the corruption of the mind. Now these quotes that Paul pulls out are quotes from Psalm chapter 14, Psalm chapter 53. So Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 reads this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is not one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all 
turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3 reads this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The way Paul starts this section off, he's leading off with his thesis. There is not a single righteous Person. If you remember Pastor Sean's message from last week, he focused intensely and particularly on God's righteousness, that God is always fair and good and he does what is right, and we come to humans and we stand on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. As David, the psalm writer, knew, and Paul here affirms, there is no just, good, or fair person. It's even reminiscent to me of uh, Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham is pleading with God for the city of Sodom. God reveals he has this plan to destroy the city of Sodom just because of rampant, unbridled wickedness. And Abraham is just like, oh, how is it going to happen? God, you wouldn't destroy this whole city if there are a hundred righteous people. And God's like, no, I wouldn't do it for a hundred righteous people. And he keeps like kind of whittling his way down. He's like, what if there are just like 10 righteous people in this city? God says, you know what? If, there, if you can find 10 righteous people in this city, I won't destroy it. And you know what happens? He destroys it. It's gone. There's not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. So why is this the case? Yeah, there are bad things in the world, but like to say no one is righteous? How could that possibly be? Well, let's continue to read verse 11. He says, no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. There is no one person in this world on their own, apart from the grace of God, who understands God's ways, who wants on their own naturally what God has to offer. Now, there are people in this world uh, who just get certain things, right? Like not me, but there are people who get things like math or science or design or art. That's so it has been explained to me that people get things. Um, I just get pizza. Like that's what kind of naturally clicks to me, which is not helpful, but it is tasty. Um, it's not much. It's good, honest work. Uh, but no one just gets God. Yeah, people can get math. You can get physics. But no one just gets God. It is not found naturally within or naturally understood. If you've ever done a Bible study with someone who feels like they have all the answers or just deep all the time, that is a gift. It is not them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 explains that only the Spirit of God can truly understand the mind of God. On our own, we are not God-understanding people. We don't seek God. That's what this verse says. That's not what we ourselves are after. We want answers, but we'd rather fill in our own blanks for who God is and what he stands for. Thomas Schreiner notes that Paul's picking Psalms, in, in his picking of the Psalms to make this argument, he repeats the none motif, and it serves to drive home the absolute pervasiveness of sin. He explains that refusal to acknowledge and glorify God results in futile speculation, and when we speculate, we insert our own answers into the world because we refuse the truth. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not one. We begin and continue to see how great this gulf is between God and ourselves. God is perfectly righteous while we are perfectly unrighteous. 
God is altogether good, and we are unable to do good. God is supremely glorious and worthy of praise, and in sin we make ourselves worthless. Now, what do we mean by worthless? Because it's important, I think, to be careful here, because worthless can mean different things to different people. Uh, The Hebrew word here is alach, which implies corruption, something that has been muddied or tainted, like milk that has gone sour. It was once good and whole, but since that time it has lost its sense of wholeness or goodness or completeness. We, we are sinners, you, me, we are sinners who have taken what we are, created beings made by God in his image, and we, through sinful nature and sinful choices, have corrupted ourselves, marring our inherent worth. Do not understand this passage to mean that because you have sinned, you are useless and trash. Jesus did not die for trash, and we will not call the bride of Christ trash. But what we have all done is turned aside from God. If you remember Romans 1, we all have written on our consciences the general law of God, the idea that uh, there is this greater morality that exists in the minds and hearts of all people. And as our minds are corrupted, we turn away from what we know to be right in order to do what we want. Our corrupted minds, once beautifully made in the image of God, have rebelled and taken God to rewrite God in order to make him in our image into a God that is small and weak and understandable to the corrupt mind. As I said at the outset, there is bad news and there is good news. The bad news is that on your own, you have no chance to know God. You are a sinner, you are corrupt, you have earned nothing more than judgment, and you are futile in your thinking, says Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. But the good news is that the work of God is not dependent on you being good enough, because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 9. Or said differently, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. See, your mind, no matter how smart you are, how clever you are, how wise you are, you will never be able to save yourself from an eternal hell. Your mind betrays you because it is corrupt. But God sees that brokenness and says, I want it. And he calls you to himself anyway. The second corruption that we see in this passage is the corruption of speech. In the book of James, we're told that the tongue wields incredible power to build up and destroy and everything in between. And it is such a small part of our bodies, and yet it's the one that we struggle the most to control. Our words are entirely important, and they are meaningful. Our words matter. Even in the beginning, God spoke creation into existence. He didn't, like, snap his fingers. He didn't zap things into existence. He opened his mouth. He spoke and things came to be. In the Gospels, we see Jesus heal, raise the dead, perform miracles, forgive sins with his words. In fact, Jesus himself is called the word because he is the word of God. He himself is the promises of God with skin on. Words are meaningful to God, and as creatures made in his image, our words matter as well. I was looking up speeches uh, while I was preparing this sermon. And there are some great speeches out there, but in my opinion, nothing really uh, quite crushes the moment like a good, bad speech. Um, I'm not saying this is the worst speech of all time, but in 1996, uh, Pearl Jam won a Grammy, and the speech really stunk. 
Um, it just really took all the energy out of the event and everything. And I'm like, I'm not an award show person, so I don't care. But I know people do care, and the way that they talked is like they didn't care at all, and it was awesome. Um, so like, it's funny because so, so um, like the cameras are on all the different people nominated for whatever category it was, and Pearl Jam's name gets called, and they all start like looking at each other like, oh no. This is not what we were hoping to have happen. And so they all like, they're like, do you want to go up? No. Do you want to go up? No. And so they're like, I guess we'll all just go up. And they kind of all like shuffled. Like no one's hugging or high-fiving. They're just like shuffling up to the stage. And so uh, the front man, Eddie Vedder, immediately says like, I was just here to watch the show and relax. Like this is not what I was here for. And I wasn't really wanting to learn anything. And he like looks at it and he's like, I don't really, I don't think this means anything. <laughs> That's what he, like, he says that during the Grammys. And he's like, I don't know, this doesn't mean anything to me. I think the only person that this would mean something to is my dad, but he died when I was little and never got to know him. Um, so he might care about this. And then he like starts walking away and he like leans back to me and goes, uh, thanks, I guess. And he leaves. Like That's his acceptance speech, and it's awesome. Um, <laughs> but it's like, imagine the effect that has on literally everyone else who is there. And all the people who get even marginally emotionally invested in watching the Grammys at home. Like, they're just like, cool, man. You know? Um, so, like, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, words matter. We are made by God to have words that matter. And our words can pr profoundly affect other people. And even in thinking in your own lives, you can definitely think of a time or multiple times where you've had words spoken to you or words spoken about you that have had a profound lasting effect on you in some way or another. Words matter so much. What Paul's alluding to in verses 13 and 14 is that these powerful words that God has allowed us to um, use when unredeemed lead to pain and destruction and death. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, which says, For there is no truth in their mouth, mouth their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. It's also a reference to Psalm 140, verse 3, which says, They make their tongues sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Psalm chapter 7, verse 7 also says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Paul is taking these psalms together to paint a vivid picture of how fallen humanity uses their tongue. See, Paul here is in no kind of a mood to back down from describing us how we are without Christ. Our throat is an open grave. Now, if you'll think back to the time when this was written, graves and usually, um, not usually, but he often had um, open tunes where you like put your whole families just as people died. Everyone had their shelves and stuff like that. Um, and like all kinds of nastiness was in these graves, right? Just like putrid, vile smells and all that kind of stuff. But do you know what the very worst thing that was found in these graves was? Death. It wasn't a hard question. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. Um, the obvious answer here is the correct one. Death is in every single grave. The sinful man has corrupted speech that ultimately distributes death. He also says their tongues are used to deceive. When we mentioned, chapter, we mentioned James earlier, but looking specifically at James chapter 3, we read about this tongue, and even the tongue of the believer Starting in the middle of verse 5, it says this, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things not all, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce frigs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How many of us will call someone brother or sister to their face in a completely different name behind their backs? How many of us will post something about someone but wouldn't dare repeat it in the same room as them? Ken Hughes talks about the sins of flattery and gossip in very simple terms. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. And gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you wouldn't dare say to their face. It's a simple standard and how many of us fail in this every day. I have been working in marketing with clients for under two years and I can say I have failed on this on multiple levels. My speech is corrupt. Now ask yourselves, how do you talk about the people you go to church with? How do you talk about the people you used to go to church with? How do you talk about the people you go to work with or people you go to school with? What about the way you talk about your parents or your in-laws or your children or your spouse or your siblings? Are the words that you say to or about people fit for building them up, encouraging them, showing off Christ to them, or do your words hurt, insult, tear down, and ultimately kill? Our culture has a somewhat odd affinity for sarcasm. In TV shows, comedies, movies, all that kind of stuff, sarcasm kind of gets this good, good press that it's like this great quality that um, smart and clever people have. Uh, I was being sarcastic once, and my wife uh, kindly reminded me that the word sarcasm comes from the Greek word, which means the tearing of flesh. Our modern culture celebrates a form of language that tears the flesh at those around us. No wonder our speech is corrupt. The same mouth that we use to sing worship songs on Sunday morning says all kinds of other things throughout the, word, of throughout the week that we wouldn't dare repeat in church. And why is that? Paul goes on in verse 13 to say, the venom of asps is under their lips. Asps is what we know today as the Egyptian cobra, which is different from the Raleigh spitting zebra cobra. But ultimately, you can use either one uh, based on context. Uh, but this simply reminds us that our mouths are weapons. Psalm 140, where Paul is quoting from, King David uses this as a cry to God for help. He's saying, I'm perfectly outmatched. This man who is after God's own heart, who is just this guy that um, God has chosen specifically to be the king of Israel, says, I've got no chance against people with corrupt speech. None at all. That's the world we live in today. If you spent more than like 30 minutes on Twitter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is a corrupt world filled with people with corrupt speech. And it is pretty reasonable to assume that Paul is stitching this argument together because he has in mind the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, which says, out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So when we really insult others, when we gossip or slander or mock or tear the flesh of those around us, it says far, far more about us than it says about them. If our speech is corrupt, then our heart is corrupt. And if our heart is corrupt, what chance do we have before a righteous God? Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament who became keenly aware of this when he was given a vision and he encounters God in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God in heaven. He sees the angels around him. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In this presence of holiness and purity and goodness, Isaiah is undone by his own corrupt speech. And Isaiah is a chosen prophet. He's a man that God is using to share his message with the whole people of Israel. And if that's how Isaiah feels, how, like, what are we going to do? Fortunately, Isaiah gives his solution. An angel touches his mouth and the guilt is taken away. It says his sins are atoned for. Now, none of us are likely to have a vision kind of like that, but that is indicative of what we do need. We need our sins atoned for. There is no good deed you can do, no box you can check, no prayer you can pray, no nothing you can ever think of that can take your own sins away. You have been corrupted and you cannot make yourself clean. But Jesus Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day rose in accordance with the scriptures in order that he may bring all of us to glory and forgive our sins. Trusting in the work of Jesus frees us from the condemnation of our corrupted sins and natures and no longer makes us enemies of God under his wrath, but friends. The third corruption we see is the corruption of our deeds. Back in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. So to this point, the sin has gone from the mind to the heart and out through the mouth, and it's manifesting itself in our deeds, right? Uh, um, so it, it's, it's not looking great. Um, so now, at this point, I think we as Westerners might like kind of pull the reins a little bit and say, whoa, 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 like this is kind of going a little far. Like, yeah, I've messed up. I've had some like pretty... Um, bad thoughts. I've definitely said some things I regret and wish I had not said, but like I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. You know, I haven't, I haven't shed blood. I haven't even been quick to shed blood. I've been actually very slow to shed blood. Um, I've never done anything like that. So uh, uh, let's, let's take a moment again, consider the context that this Bible was written in. And this is more of a cultural perspective and a societal perspective than that of the individual. Do we not continue to see a rise in hate crimes and unjust attacks on minorities in our culture? Do we not continue to see what organizations like Planned Parenthood does to the lives of innocent children? Do we not see violent language used by thousands of people on social media when they disagree with a public stance someone takes for any range of issues? I don't mean to say this specifically on July 4th, but we American Christians live in this culture of corrupted speech and corrupted actions and death. Paul's quoting from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16, the preacher is describing sinners as people waiting to snare people and shed their blood. And we see blood shed all around us every day. Here's the thing. Whoever is in your mind as the worst bloodshedders in our culture, you are every bit as wicked and condemned as they are apart from the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. 
Moving forward in verse 16, it says, their paths are ruin and misery. And again, we're talking about a societal perspective, so it's helpful to recognize that these paths that it describes are paths uh, behind us, not paths in for, before us. Um, now, rarely do people choose paths where they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go on the destruction path. Whoop -de -do -de -do. Um, but when we adopt for ourselves a do-what-you-got-to-do attitude or do-what's-best-for-you attitude that's at its core considers ourself above all others, it ultimately will not care what we do or say to anyone else but ourselves. Thomas Schreiner, again, here in verses 15 through 17, says that these have nothing to do with our own internal feelings or self-determinism, and it's far more about how people ultimately sabotage relationships, and as society, we are unable to create peace and joy. We constantly are trying to infuse our lives and our world with some kind of meaning and purpose, and through our own hands, we're trying to create something that is ultimately bound to fail because our deeds are corrupt. I have this bad habit of saying it's probably fine uh, when it comes to just about anything my wife and I do together. Um, I think it's kind of this weird intersection of lazy and not wanting to spend money, uh, which is a whole other sermon, but feel free to rebuke me later in the lobby. Um, examples. Sometimes I sniff the milk that expired yesterday or find a piece of wood in the shed that's been there for three years or it's a medical issue and I gloss over it with a good old-fashioned Sure, it's fine. Uh, and, some, and to my credit, sometimes it's fine. And that's probably why I keep doing it. Uh, but to Sarah's credit, many, many more times, it's not fine. Uh, sometimes we make mac and cheese only to learn it's ruined because of yesterday's milk. Or the project is ruined because I use rotten wood. Or some kind of rash gets worse because it's, it is, in fact, a rash and not a blemish. Uh, so th these are examples of when something is bad, it makes the whole thing bad. When something is corrupt, it destroys everything else that it tries to build. We shouldn't be surprised at the worsening effects of each of those because sour milk is always going to make nasty mac and cheese. Corrupted deeds are always going to cause paths of pain and misery, and that's the world we live in. In Isaiah chapter 64, the best deeds of the most wonderful person in the world are described as filthy rags before God because of our corrupted natures and also our corrupted deeds. If you really want an interesting study, go find the original um, Hebrew for the words um, filthy rags. It's gross and explicit, and if you feel like it, check it out in your free time. Um, but the imagery is clear. You are standing before God. He says, why should I let you into my kingdom? And your response is to say, I'll give you this. And you pick out like this nasty, vile rag that's like kind of crusty and oozing and like all covered in all kinds of filth and stuff. Be like, I'll give you this if you let me into heaven. That's what the imagery is here, is that our deeds are corrupt. It's not that our deeds can't get us into heaven. It's that our deeds wouldn't even get us close even if they could. Our deeds could never justify us. In fact, our deeds can only really condemn us. Even truly religious, zealous deeds, like casting out demons in the name of Christ, is met with condemnation when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I never knew you. These deeds, works in the name of Jesus, are corrupt because of unredeemed flesh, unbelieving people. Our flesh, our deeds are corrupt. Corrupt deeds can never build up 
and in the long term will only destroy. Our fourth and final corruption is the corruption of faith. The very first people, Adam and Eve, for a time, enjoyed an uncorrupt faith. A faith where they would gladly spend time with God in his presence without any shame, sadness, pain, hurt, or fear. Their lives were a constant yes to God, and God was a constant yes to them. And one day they chose no. And ever since that first no to God, the world has been slowly corrupting. And ultimately, in Paul's argument here, the full culmination of the corruption of people is when we say no to God, just like our first parents did years ago. Verse 18 reads, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is a quote from uh, Psalm 36, chapter 1, which says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You get a sense of the pride that's building up in the heart here? Sin speaks to our unredeemed hearts. It is enticing. It sounds really good, pleasurable, fulfilling. Corrupt faith says, I trust in me. I know what's best for me. I know what I need. God's word is just outdated old ideas, and I know what's best. A corrupt faith puts itself in the place of our lives that ought to be specifically reserved for God. He is the creator, the maker, the master. He is supreme authority over us and all creation. We have no right to self-determinism because whatever God says is truth, it is so supremely true that that whatever we bring near to that melts like wax before the sun. We have in our natural, normal state a corrupt mind, which begets a corrupt heart, which begets corrupt speech, which begets corrupt deeds, which results in a corrupted faith that cannot adequately trust or know God. John Calvin puts it like this. He says, all wickedness flows from a disregard of God. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us up to indulge in every kind of licentious conduct. If we are indeed corrupt from top to bottom, there is no real reason to restrain our sin. There are systems in place, governments, cultures, personal philosophies, other religions that don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord, whereby some of these corruptions are held in check, but ultimately, wickedness flows from not knowing God, and as we do not know God in our sinful, corrupt, natural states, we are ultimately destined toward wickedness, furthering the great chasm between ourselves and the Lord. We keep reading in verses 19 and 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're going to summarize these last two verses succinctly with the help of Warren Wiersbe. Those who know God's law are unable to keep it perfectly, which is equivalent to failing in every single part of the law, according to James chapter 2, verse 10. 
and those who don't know God's law freely violate what can be known about God's law as well as their own God-given consciences, living hypocritically and breaking whatever law they have made unto themselves, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. So where does that put us? Whether you know God's law or you don't know God's law, you are corrupt and you cannot earn God's salvation. Sin is too deep, it is too pervasive, and you are too corrupt for you to be any kind of good enough or to save yourselves. Paul David Tripp puts it like this. He says, our big problem in life is not familial or historical or societal or political or relational or ecclesiastical or financial. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face is that somehow, somehow, some way influences everything we think, say, and do isn't outside of us it's inside. If you had none of the above problems in your life, you would still be in grave danger because of the danger you are to yourself. From the moment of the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, human beings have worked to deny what is true about them. That is, we are all desperately, we all desperately need what only God's grace can give us. Our corrupt faith trusts in ourselves that we are righteous. Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 18 with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The religious leader, the Pharisee, he says how grateful he is to be different, called apart, set apart, unique. Um, and this public servant who is hated just weeps and repents. Corrupt faith will have us pray like the Pharisee, rejoicing that we are unique, special, and different. Our corrupt faith will ultimately damn us as it puts our trust in ourselves and not in Christ. One commentary points out the language that Paul uses here in verses 19 and 20 implies a trial with no possibility of acquittal. So let me be as clear as I can if I haven't been already. The way we naturally are as humans, all people on our own, we are condemned. We are hell-bound. And it's not even close. We are creatures of corrupt minds, corrupt hearts, and speech, corrupt deeds, and ultimately, a corrupt faith. So we're at the end of the passage. Is everyone sufficiently bummed out now? So this is the best part and my favorite part of it. Uh, I'm going to steal a little bit from whoever's preaching next week because I love you guys and didn't want you guys to feel sad all week. Um, Here's the deal. Every single thing that we just talked about, what we just read, it's all true. You can hate it. You can be angry at me. But ultimately, I'm just telling you what God's word says. So if you have a problem, it's not with me. It is with God. And you do have a problem with God. And the problem is you. But God has a solution. God sent Jesus. Jesus came to this earth fully God and fully man. He was free from all of this sin and corruption, according to Hebrews 4.15. He lived a perfect life, John 
First uh, John 3, 5, free from any of the corruption and sin we have discussed. This sinless, spotless, perfect man was condemned to die on the cross. And when he was put on that cross, all the sins and corruption of everyone who has ever lived, is living, and ever will live were placed on him. And according to the prophet, it pleased the Lord to see Jesus bear these sins and to crush him. Why? To bring each and every one of us to glory. Hebrews 2.10. God shows his love for you through what he did in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 1.9, and it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all corruption and unrighteousness. And it is that simple. Do you acknowledge your sins? Confess them, believe, and recognize when what Jesus has done for you, he not only takes away your sin problem, but he cleanses you from corruption and gives you the righteousness of God. By believing, you are brought from condemnation and the object of God's wrath into God's love and the delight of God. Most freely, it again has nothing to do with you. Place your faith in Jesus and you are who God wants you to be. God will create in you a renewed mind, a renewed heart. He will quiet your mouth by his love. He will bless the works of your hands and feet, and he will justify your faith apart from works of the law. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, and this is a wonderful idea by Tim Keller who says that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And you are more loved and cherished and welcomed in Christ than you ever dared to hope. Understand what Jesus has accomplished and done for you. Give to God your corrupted self. Realize that God will work in you and make all things new. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is an incredible love and kindness of God in Christ and the wonderful things he has in store for us who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to ask you for this last part. I'm going to all ask that we stand together. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1 verses one through six. And if you cry, it's okay. I cried while typing it out. We're gonna read this and rejoice in what God does for corrupt people. Um, so Revelation chapter one, chapter 21, verses one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, how good it is to be loved by a perfect God who saved us. We, on our own, were corrupt. We were sinful. We were choosing anything and everything we could apart from you, and yet you made us your own through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you died for us. You took our sins on yourself on the cross. You crushed your son to bring many sons to glory. And now we call you friend, we call you Lord, and we follow you. Thank you for how you love us. And we love you too, God. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.